0: Hello and welcome to History in Reverse, a father-daughter science fiction podcast. Today we will be discussing the short story, The Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang, and the film adaptation Arrival. listening to the third episode of History Universe. My name is Caroline and I'm here with my father Richie. Hi. And today is um, well, actually Father's Day that we're recording this That's podcast. That's right. Very
1: appropriate.
0: <laughs> uh, so happy Father's Day. <laughs>
1: Thank
0: you. <laughs> today we will be discussing the story of your life which is a short story within a collection um, of Ted Chiang's story and the the whole book is called the story of your life right? Yes. And this is the story that the movie Arrival, which came out in 2016, uh, was based on. It was a very popular, uh, pretty successful um, science fiction movie that came out. Before we jump into that, though, let me just uh a couple of things, a couple of front matter things. This is our continuation of our project to do every month or so, read something or watch something and do a podcast and discuss it. Um, so this is the third episode, and this is the first time we'll be talking about a movie in conjunction with the story right. as well, which we, hopefully we get to do later as well. And we do have a new icon. Our podcast has a fancy new icon, which our friend Melanie made, and it's awesome and I love it. So yes. shout out to Melanie. Thanks, Thank Melanie. you. It looks great. So check out our, our new fancy icon. So jumping into the story of your life, Ted Chiang is the author. He's written quite a bit, and I know, Dad, you looked up a little bit about him. Right, um, so, so he's a
1: fairly young uh, American science fiction writer. He was born in 1967. And uh, the story of your life is one of his early works, It actually won a couple of awards, mm-hmm. including um, Best Nebula, Best Novella, and Nebula Award for Best Novella, mm-hmm. And one of his earlier stories um, that won some awards as well was a story called Tower of Babylon, which Mm -hmm. is also in the collection, which I think is also really nice. Yeah,
0: I read that one too, yeah.
1: Story of Life was written in uh, 1999. I guess I was published in 1999. And so it's been around for a while. And he's written a bunch of other stuff since then, but it seems like this collection of his stories is like the main one. Mm -hmm. There's a book that he wrote um, recently called The Life Cycle of Software Objects. I was interested in buying it. Mm-hmm. And the only available version are like in hardcover for 150 dollars a piece. Oh. so seems like an odd. So probably let's was...
0: can wait on that for now. Yes, <laughs> that's weird. It's not on Kindle. No, everything's. How how do you highlight things if it's not on Kindle? Yeah. So so it, within this collection, um, you know, we I think we both saw the movie Arrival first, right, yes. and then we ended up reading the story. Right. And I've seen the movie now. I think three times. I think you've seen it twice. twice. And then this is the second read through for both of us for right. the story. Right. So before we jump into a summary or discussion, I guess, just off the bat, what would you think did you prefer the movie or the story? or do you think they're
1: both good? They were surprisingly both good. Usually movie adaptations are horrible. <laughs> yeah. And this was like probably one of the better ones that I've seen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: right I mean, last time we talked about, when we talked about Solaris, we talked about the movie adaptation of Solaris, which were and interesting movies, but not particularly good adaptation mm. of the books. In this case, I, I think it worked.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Actually, I, I when we saw the movie, I loved it. I was like really obsessed with it. And then I saw it a second time and realized I totally misinterpreted it the first time because <laughs> I didn't get I didn't get the main plot, the main plot really until the second watch. So I guess we can we're gonna discuss the. The story in the movie at the same time, so mostly right. There's discuss... going to be lots
1: of uh, spoilers, <laughs> so if you haven't seen the movie or read the book, then and... stop
0: and go see the movie. <laughs> right. It looks like what two hours. Like go yeah. watch it and come back. <laughs> right. So I think what we're gonna be describing the plot of the book, and then as it, because the movie does really follow it very closely. Right. So where there are differences, we'll we'll bring them up and discuss them uh, as they uh, occur. And we're going to try to describe this plot as linearly as possible.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um, so why did you start with the the beginning? Where what does the the story start?
1: Well, I suppose the story starts with the arrival of the aliens, mm-hmm. right? Which is why the, like the movie is called Arrival. But what what I wanted to say is that this is like really two stories in one, where they kind of interweave, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there's the story of basically how. To communicate with the aliens that arrive
2: mm-hmm. on
1: Earth, and and the main character, which uh, is a woman mm-hmm. for a change, yes, <laughs> uh, is a linguist, and she's asked to translate the language of the aliens, and she insists that she has to meet them and talk to them in order to be able to understand the language. The book basically is that it's like what happens when you try to understand this language and some odd things that they discovered about the language and what it implies to, to people who all learn it, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, so one of the two stories is the story of how they try to communicate with the aliens and how they discover things about the language and stuff. Mm-hmm. The other story is about her daughter. And right? mm-hmm. so this woman has a daughter, she talks about her being a baby and, and growing up and being older and, and ultimately the daughter dies. Mm-hmm. And there's some differences here between the, the story and the movie.
0: Mm-hmm. So at the time when the aliens arrive, though, does she have a daughter?
1: Well, <laughs> good question. So if you read the story or you read the, or you see the movie, you can tell, right? Mm-hmm. It, when I first saw the movie, the first couple of shots are of a daughter playing, you assume that she's remembering something that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. And only later you realize that it's not exactly correct.
0: Right. So so the, the main character's name is Luis and um, she's like you said she's a linguist and I think what's sort of interesting about this story that's different from maybe some of the other science fiction we were reading was that this is like I this could happen in like modern day Earth right. like none of the technology that the humans are using is really science fiction technology it's like recording it with video recording it with audio that kind of stuff right. computer programs the you know, math that we currently have that kind of thing all the science fiction really comes from the aliens right. So in the books, the aliens arrive by sending down what they call looking glasses,
1: which is this. Uh, like a, a communication device. It's, like, like, a it's, it's like, a, like a video video conferencing. Yeah, system. <laughs> they're like skyping
0: in. <laughs> it's like a big, like uh, kind of milky screen, and they send a few of them, uh, several of them around. Actually,
1: in, in in the story, they send a lot of them. There's like yeah. a few hundred. Whereas yeah. in the movie, the ships actually. Are, Sort of right. land and, and but there's only a that's dozen the
0: difference land. in the movie. It's a it's sort of these giant imposing, like black egg shaped ships that sort of float
2: above. Right, fields. which is
1: like when I first saw the uh, advertisements for the movie, I said, "Oh no, it's another one of those movies that aliens arrive and everything blows up." Right. and There's a big in you know, big big fight. So we were pleasantly surprised when we actually yeah. watched it.
0: Definitely, definitely, and I think this sort of calls back to when we read um, what was it Ursula Le Guin's story, "Left Hand of Darkness." Mm-hmm where the emissary in that story said if you just send one person, it's a curiosity, but if you send a whole boatload of people to the planet, it's like an invasion and it's right. threatening.
2: Right.
0: And in the story, the story of your life, the people aren't particularly frightened by the looking glasses. They're no, like curious no. about them. Right. But the sh- the presence of the ships in the movie, I think it sort of changes the tone a lot because the right. the people in the movie are much more...
1: Threatened. threatened. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: they feel yeah. a lot more threatened by it. And I mean, I, I guess understandably so, because the ships are like huge, massive. So, in both the story and the movie, Luis ends up going and being able to meet the aliens. And I think um, she's
1: recruited, the, the, the way the recruiting happens of hers, it's kind of similar in both, mm-hmm. where the military comes to her, because I guess she's a well-known linguist, and they play her a recording of some speech of the aliens, and they said, can you translate this? Yeah, <laughs> and she just gives him a strange look, and she says, basically, I have to meet them and in, in person, you know, mm-hmm. and talk to them. Otherwise, you can't translate the language right just from from listening to it.
0: And there, there's like a movie. There's more concern that like the military doesn't want information to spread or something. They don't right. want to. They have like a list. They they made it more dramatic.
1: For yeah, it to there's little, a really. little bit of that in in, in the story, but yeah, where, not where, as much.
0: Yeah. Not as much. So she ultimately goes, and she ends up meeting the physicist
1: right so i think in the book it's maybe clearer they're trying to follow like this the standard way we we think how we communicate with aliens Mm -hmm. you would you know send them prime numbers or the mathematical formulas and she's a linguist she says you can't talk about that stuff unless you can say you know hello here i am you know Mm -hmm. this is me this is you yeah you know and that point is not made as clearly in in the movie although they do have a they do show had like, showing the aliens, like, the very basic things, mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm Louise, mm-hmm. this is Gary, yeah. the, f- the physicist. Yeah. And the physicist was there so that he could somehow present some physical laws to the aliens and, and mm-hmm. us to to make it, like, a basis for mm-hmm. communication.
0: So let's talk about what the aliens look like. Because right, that's so really what are cool. they called? They're called heptapods because they have seven legs? Hepta seven?
1: What is hepta seven or eight?
0: Seven. seven. Uh, eight seven. eight okay. is octo. Okay. So of hepta. Yeah. Hepta. Yes. Yeah. So they they look similar. The description from the book is largely played out on screen. I think.
1: Right. So in in the, in the movie they kind of hide them in this fog, so you yeah. can't see them quite. So know.
0: the way the way it works is so in the in the book there's the looking glass that's this big. It's sort of like a movie screen. Like imagine if it was just a movie screen. It's like really a very thin. good
1: video conferencing system. Yeah.
0: it Really is. <laughs> it's clean energy, and. Uh, <laughs> But and then what they do in the in the movies they take the same concept of the looking glass like a like a movie screen but they put it inside the giant spooky ship
1: right because the aliens live in a different atmosphere so they right. want them to you know
0: well, well that's a big difference in the in the movie they're actually in the ship on the planet right whereas in the book it seemed that they're just they're just skyping in right they didn't leave home they
1: just sent well they're in the in the, or, orb, orbit of Earth
0: uh, is there a ship in orbit yeah yeah oh I didn't, I missed that. So they're, but they're not physically on the planet, which again, I think changes the, the threatening
2: in right, this level. Right, right.
0: And yeah, there's like this, in the movie, there's like this sort of like fog, and then the heptapods are like black, and they have seven long legs, kind of look like a, like a squid kind of thing.
1: Squidish, yeah. Yeah,
0: squidish. But the legs are sort of stiffer, so they like walk on them. Right. Um, And it's a similar description in the book. In the book, though, there's an interesting difference that the heptapods in the book have eyes. Right. And um, it's like the cone of their body, you know, goes up and tapers off. And at the top of their, at the top of that is eyes of seven eyes around all sides. So that basically the heptapod has no front or back.
1: Right. It's... They only just walk forward, basically. Right. It's like they can not No matter walk... which direction they go. Right. Yeah.
0: And it's sort of one of the early hints as to what Luis is going to discover in terms of the language. Right. There's no forward. They don't have a forward or backward. They don't have a, a right. direction. So
1: so right. So turns out that um, they have very difficult time trying to understand the spoken language of the heptapods, mm-hmm. and it's just like impossible to decipher or reproduce or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they try to do writing. Mm-hmm. Right. So they hold up signs saying, you know, I'm Louise, or mm-hmm. you know, this is an arm. Mm-hmm. And heptapods heptop- also have writing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, in, in the book, they call them Heptapod A, which is a spoken language, and Heptapod B, which is the written language. Mm-hmm. And what well, they discover very quickly, what do they call them? Logograms?
0: They, they, in the, they call them logograms and then she changes the name to something else later, but be logogram is fine. It's something like that.
1: So, one, one of the interesting things that she discovers about this written language, that unlike human languages that, that we normally, that we know, is the writing does not represent words or sounds, it represents symbols. Mm-hmm. So you can think of it like, if you have a little drawing of a person running across the road, mm-hmm. you know that means something, but it's it's not the word.
0: Right. There's no sound with it. Yeah.
1: Right. And so the two languages are quite different.
0: Mm-hmm. And the the visual the visual is similar, but I actually thought that the movie did a better job in this way because the logograms of the book is sort of like. It's, it's still like a line of writing, right. but it's all sort of meshed together, whatever. It's like, a, sort of like a spider web kind of thing. And in the movie, they did the same thing, but they made them into circles, right. which I thought was really interesting. So every heptapod, like sentence or idea was in a circle, and then the circle has like weird little squiggly lines on it and right. stuff, which again sort of can set the you know the ultimate conclusion with the language.
1: Right. So like a couple of things I, I noted is like the, if you think about having written language that is not tied up to words, like painting, for example, art, mm-hmm. Art, you know, a painting can, can convey a lot of meaning without having specific words
2: mm-hmm.
1: represented by, by things. Uh, mathematical notation is another one, mm-hmm. you know, in math you can write things that don't really have, mm-hmm. They may have names or something, but the meaning is, is something beyond the, you know, it's just in the symbols, not in not mm-hmm. any, anything else.
0: Yeah, it's super trippy. <laughs> so
1: I guess we can give away a little bit of, of, so what was this whole other story happening besides the aliens? What about her daughter?
0: So what, So this sort of goes to the structure of the story, I think, and the, the movie mimics this, which is great. So the story is structured where more or less every other chapter goes between these two stories. Right. And you get like a chapter about like the, and the story of the heptapods basically goes chronologically. Right. Um, so we have like that one chronological thread of like the heptapods arrive, and then we did these various experiments and it moves forward. And then we get these cuts to the very, sh- and the chapters are all pretty short. You get these cuts to these chapters where um, Luis will say something like, I remember a day when you will be yada, yada, yada. Like, I remember a day when we will be going to the mall together. And it's you actually pointed out the tense issue right,
1: there. Right, right. So basically she talks about her daughter. So she talks about different points in life of her daughter when she was born. When she, I don't know if she talks about being born in the book. Maybe she does a little bit. She
0: talks she, about when she's an infant.
1: She talks about... When she's a teenager, mm-hmm. she talks about just various different things that mm-hmm. happen to her. but every one of those sections begins is written in future tense mm-hmm. which it's just kind of very subtle that I didn't notice actually on the first reading. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't notice, notice it on, the fir- on second reading and, and not right away anyway. Mm-hmm. you have an uh, example?
0: Yeah, I'm trying to see because I highlighted a bunch of stuff in my, my Kindle for this one. Especially after you put, you told me about that, and I was like, oh man, you're right. So like this this one, this is I think towards the end. She says, I remember when you'll be a month old, and I'll stumble out of bed to give you your 2 a.m. feeding. Your nursery will have that baby smell of diaper rash cream and talcum powder with a faint ammoniac. Ammoniac. Ammoniac, yeah. I'm really good at this. <laughs> ammoniac whiff coming from the diaper pail in the corner. I'll lean over your crib, li- lift your squalling form out, and sit in the rocking chair to nurse you. So, it's sort of this, it's future tense, right? but it's her saying, I remember.
1: So, but the first, first sentence of the story, interesting enough, is in Uh present tense. Really? Yes. It says, your father is about to ask me the question.
0: Oh, Uh, interesting.
1: Okay. So, so that, that's kind of the, the big hint that the, what seems like memories of, uh, of a daughter are written in future tense and mm-hmm. they're really meant to be happening in the future right and i think maybe the zero-sum game is the non zero-sum game mm, that's a the, good example kind of the giveaway. right yeah, i agree that?
0: yeah well so basically what's happening yeah. with the structure and, the, and like i was saying before the movie mimics this by cutting scenes together is that we're we realize as the story progresses that what's happening is as Luis is learning the heptapod language she's Beginning to perceive time differently because right. the lang the heptapods perceive time differently, right. and the and language controls your reality. And we could talk a little bit more about that. But the zero sum game moment is one like one of the biggest reveals in both the book and the movie, where you get a scene where Louise says something like um. I- so what,
1: what's <coughs> happening is Louise is sitting. This is she's at her house and her mm-hmm. daughter's doing some homework, mm-hmm. and she asks. Her, and clearly by then, you know, there she had divorced her father, right? Right. So mm-hmm. he's not there. But here, she mentioned he's a scientist. Right. And the daughter says, I'm writing a report and I I need to know this word for this kind of a game where, you know, you don't lose. It's just that everybody wins. And Mm -hmm. and Louis says, is that a win-win game? And she says, no, no, that that has some much more scientific sounding name. Right. And says, I don't know. You have to call your father to ask him that.
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Right. And then they cut to the scene where she's talking to the heptapods or she's like involved in the research Mm -hmm. and, and... and the, uh, what's his name, Gary, Gary. The, the physicist, talks about something and he says it's a non-zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. And then you flip back.
0: Right. And it goes right back into that scene. And Luis, in that scene, knows the answer as being non-zero-sum game. And so then she tells her daughter. Right. And so it's one of the first times we really see her passing information to herself through, through this like uh, new understanding of time. Right. You know? Right. And they they do it in the movie as well, and it works in the same way as it does in the book, right. which is great. So she's I'm trying to think of like what actual events occur because they, there's a lot of like discussion of math, and then I guess they get they make a breakthrough with the heptapods at one point with the math. Um, well,
1: the, the as she's learning more of the written language, she's starting to slowly to realize that it's kind of well, right. So this is <laughs> <laughs> this goes through the whole idea. Of how language influences your thinking Mm -hmm. and your perception and we actually just watched a very nice TED talk with with super examples of just that so we'll link to it on the in the notes Mm -hmm. Uh, but but the example I really like is of the aborigines who have language that doesn't have the words for left and right right and instead they always describe things in terms of directions cardinal directions like north south west east Mm -hmm. and like she said in, in the TED Talk, she says, so some, they'll say, look, there is an ant crawling on the southeast part of your leg. Yeah. <laughs> of course, if you turn the other way around, it'll be, you know, northwest or whatever. Mm-hmm. But she says, because all these people learn this kind of stuff from when they the tiny babies, everyone there knows exactly where north, southeast right. are all the time. Mm-hmm. Because it's just like fundamental to their way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so this shows you how language influences you're thinking. Mm-hmm. So this idea is kind of explored in the story, right? So, but the but yeah. the heptapod writing language is somehow time independent, mm-hmm. and it um, lets you see all of time basically. Mm-hmm. And they get a little bit into physics, yeah, <laughs> <coughs> trying to explain this. And well, so so there's a scene event.
0: there's a scene where she she's working on the writing, and they didn't really I guess they didn't really do this in the movie because they couldn't really but. She's trying to parse out from, like, you know, a big string of, like, spider-webby kind of loops that the heptopod writes. She's trying to parse out pieces and strokes and, like, see if there's, like, an alphabet or if there's something, like, something she can pull out of it. And she videotapes the heptopod writing it. And the way they write it is, like, they, they use their tentacles to make, like, ink. Yeah, it, actually, that, that yeah. was very
1: cool in the movie. Yeah, that was, like, that. very
0: visual. So the, the she films it and she slows it down and watches... The ink coming out of the heptapod tentacle, and realizes that like the first stroke that it makes is a stroke that's used in like multiple parts, like multiple characters of the right, sentence. Right, like you have to know
1: the entire sentence right before you can start writing it. Right, right exactly. That's right. So yeah.
0: she and she's like, you know, they must know the whole sentence first, which is weird to, I mean, to think. I mean, think about like when you sit down to write something. You have an idea. Like, have an idea of kind of where you're going, but you don't know for for sure, like exactly what works. Normal are people gonna, don't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe Luis does, but not us. And so she she starts to realize that their their language scene does seem to be independent of time, or at least from linear time. And um, and then you start to get all these things sort of come together, like the structure of the Heptapod itself, the fact that it's you know perfectly symmetrical all the way around, it has right. no forward or backward. Right. Its writing doesn't, the, the logograms don't have to be in any particular order. The strokes don't have to be in any particular order, um, all these things like that. And as she's learning it, she's basically beginning to see time in the way that they must be seeing time, which is without a, a linear
1: structure. Correct. Right. Kind of. Yeah. So then the, the Trance some physics. Into all this, because as it turns out in physics, a lot of the formulas and stuff are not dependent on time mm-hmm. so the the kind of example I always use i don't, i don't pretend to understand this <laughs> but uh you know you can say that you know an electron moving forward is the same thing as a positron going backwards in time, and that's simply. That sounds really crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but if you write the equation, if you, you know, electron has negative charge, positive, positive charge. Mm-hmm. So if you change the sign of the charge from plus to minus and you change the sign of time from plus to minus, mm. minus time minus is plus. So you get the same exact equation, but you can describe it in these two different ways. Mm. And neither one is wrong.
0: That blows my mind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and they also talk about Fermi's principle and this Variational physics. Oh, the beam of light, yeah. So the beam of light is just an example, but um, a lot of laws in physics can be stated that way, which mm. which is rather than um, describing how things change in time, you can say something will always take the minimum, or, or the fa- the light always takes fastest path from right. one point A, point mm. B. So light kind of has to know ahead of time what's... In front of it, because when it goes through water, it has to bend the right way mm. because speed of light right. is different in water, and and it's
0: yeah no I love this I love the Fermat's principle thing because it's a, it's a sciencey thing I understood actually when I read it okay go ahead <laughs> so the like you were saying the I- whole idea is that um, light will take the uh, fastest route to a point point. Right. and if you look at light when light comes from say the sun um, if the point that it's going to is like somewhere under water it's like under a lake. When the light hits the water, it doesn't just go straight down to the point but uh, because uh, water refracts light differently than air. The light bends and goes in a like, sort of different way. So if you were to draw it out, it would be like a straight line till it hits the water and then it like sort of bends and goes into whatever direction to the point. And that's because it's faster for the light to go that way and go through less water because it tra- light travels slower through water. It's faster for light to go through less water than for it to go straight and go through more water. Then it would time-wise go slower to the point. Right.
1: So light has to kind of know.
0: It has to know what the point is, right? That's the whole thing. It has to know what the ending is before it goes to be able to, for lack of a better word, to be able to choose the path that's fastest. Right. And uh, this is actually um, one, one of my favorite scenes in the book where um and when this is sort of when louise is putting together what's happening to her because she's experiencing this kind of thing where she's like remembering stuff and it comes across a little bit more in the movie i think yeah because she says who is this child she's having these right memories of a child she doesn't know and in the movie she says to her she wakes up from a dream or something and she says who is this child so she's starting to figure out like the mystery of like what's happening to her and in the book she's sitting with gary at a chinese food restaurant and she says i don't really get the Fermat's principle thing, it seems a little wonky to me. And right. um, he, they talk about the fact that light n- would need to know the point it's going towards before it even begins its path in order to pick the fastest path.
1: Um, right, and that kind of makes it up to the how, how heptapods write. Right,
0: Right, exactly.
1: When they start writing, it's like, you know exactly, they can like start writing from both ends or something.
0: Right, exactly. So, so I guess the, the reveal I mean, they basically do all these experiments. It's like it's really science They right. do various experiments they, to learn the heptopods language and they make some breakthroughs with the math. And then in the movie, there's sort of all this political tension.
1: Right. So in the movie, they're trying to build up tension to like some kind of a climax and, and uh, to make the movie more exciting, I mm-hmm. suppose. It's, I, mean, I think you're right. It wouldn't work otherwise. Movie will be kind of very slow, like Solaris. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The
0: the story is fantastic, and I think the story, because of its structure, it keeps the attention Mm -hmm. um, because of sort of the mystery and the the slow reveal of how the language is working. Right,
1: and it's very cleverly done through writing.
0: Right, that I don't think you could really translate to a movie. So I, I understand why they did
2: that. Right, so in the
1: movie basically what happens is there's all these countries that are trying to communicate with heptopods and mm-hmm. military being paranoid as they always are saying mm-hmm. make sure you don't reveal anything to the heptapods mm-hmm. and they're making a big deal of a translation of some word whether it means tool or weapon right right and so they they're trying to f- ask them why did you come here
0: right they want to know the purpose like, right and they say they want to know their purpose uh, uh, it's all about. <laughs> it's all about the purpose it's all about the goal yeah so they're trying to figure out because I think the one of the heptapod screens or one of the heptapod uh, ships in the movie tells somebody that they're there to give them a gift and the gift is a weapon. And like they translate it as weapon.
1: Right. Um, right. But
0: then Luis is like, well, hold up, hold up. You know, It could mean tool. It could right. mean whatever.
1: And yeah. then in the movie what happens is there's all these scientists collaborating from each site where they're talking to the aliens and the military decides that this is too dangerous and they cut it off. Right. And so there's this big thing where uh, I guess the Chinese are about to go and blow up the ship that that's attacked the ship that's on yeah. their, uh, mm-hmm. in the country and and then we have these interesting cuts so there's like a cut to uh, where Louise is at this party like a United Nations or something mm-hmm. and she's talking to the the, the leader of the Chinese the, army yeah the
0: Chinese Gen- General Shang I think it is something like that
1: Oh, Chang, maybe, maybe maybe, like the guy's name. Oh, maybe they old.
0: named it after Chang.
2: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize uh, that. I, I think, think they it. might have. They
1: might have, yeah. <laughs> and he t- tells her, you know, it was a good thing that you called me on my private number before we started Before we started the attack. So, we stopped it and, and everything turned out well. Mm-hmm. And she says, but I I never knew your private number. And he says, well, here it is. And he shows her his phone. Yeah. And then it cuts back to the point where this tension's building up. They're getting ready, you know, military's trying to getting ready to attack or something. Mm -hmm. And she grabs a phone.
0: Yeah.
1: And calls the general. Yeah. And tells him. He actually he told it like a secret. Yeah. So his his
0: wife's dying words, I think. Right. Yeah.
1: So Um. that you know he would know, and and that kind of convinces them to Mm -hmm. stand down.
0: Yeah. And so that's like by that point she's figured out that this what's happening right. with this right. and it's sort of circular in this way I think it comes across in the movie really well as she's learning the heptapod's language her brain is sort of reorganizing itself to understand time right. differently right. and as she's understanding time differently she's gaining knowledge from the future that's informing her now right. which includes her complete understanding of the heptapod language because we see her having these flashes of future right, memories right. of the, like, the book she, she the book, wrote. Right, right. And her teaching the class on the Heptapod language. And like all the things. And so she like very suddenly goes from like having a sort of basic understanding to really having a full understanding. Right. Because it all sort of comes in at once.
1: Well, in the story, it, she says she never quite has full understanding. But yeah. enough that, that she can perceive time mm-hmm. in this different way.
0: Yeah, because she says her brain is too... Too wired to like the humans to right. really get it all right. all the way, but she gets it pretty well. That yeah, that's the climax. Basically, what's the climax in the
2: story?
1: The story comes back to the the beginning. Yeah. Of the of of where he says, "Let's make a baby." Yeah. So, Gary, the physicist, and the story actually is becomes the husband and mm. and the father of a child, and. You know, and the story begins where he, basically, like at home, having had some wine, some party, and said, so, "Okay, let's make a baby." And mm-hmm. then the story ends in the same scene. Right. And I just, as we just noticed, the the scene is written in the present tense. Yeah. I think to- what no, what I want to talk about is is the, the the two themes, right? So one is the the language affects your thinking. Right? Mm-hmm. So whatever language you speak, you know, you write changes your thinking. Mm-hmm. The the kind of interesting idea here is that. The author kind of took these ideas from physics. What time? Mm-hmm. The, what is the nature of time? Oh, I don't know. Right. I, we, we, so.
0: <laughs> well, so can I tell tell a little anecdote yes. from uh, our family about this? Well, so, we should
1: also talk about the the story actually of the daughter. The, we talk about the aliens. Let's talk about the other part. Of oh
0: it. yeah, well, wait, but well, I, I mean, have a thing for about language. I don't know if you remember this. So, um, my mother, your your wife, you know mm-hmm. her. Um, I do. <laughs> She was an English teacher for a really long time, uh, seventh grade English, and one of the lessons she would do with her students in the beginning of the year was basically she would give, she'd take out uh, colored pencils and she'd split the room in half and she'd say, okay, this side, pick two colors. You can use two colors. So everyone would pick like red and blue or something. And then the other side, she'd give them the entire box. And of course, the first side would get very upset. And then she'd get everyone pictures to color. And they were only allowed to use the pencils they had access to. So the one half of the room only had all these pictures that were all, you know, colored nicely. But they only had blue and red or something. And the other side had all the beautiful colors. And she taped them up to the board. And the whole point was, you can only, you can only execute something as well as like the tools that you have. And it was supposed to be a metaphor for vocabulary. Like this is why oh, it's well, important it. right. to study vocabulary because you can and you can only describe. You can only express yourself to the extent that your language allows you to. Right. And so you need a big vocabulary to be able to paint a pretty picture just like the, the colored okay. pencils. So it, but it's, it's very relevant. That's, that same idea is relevant here, right? right? It's like the whole concept that it's absolutely true. Your language does control the extent to which you can it, it not only express yourself, but understand information.
1: Or understand the world, right? So, right. again, from this TED talk, I mean, these, these aborigines who know which which way is north, right. the Time, yeah. All languages, like she mentioned in the same talk, that don't have counting numbers. Mm-hmm. So, it's difficult to learn math if you cannot count, mm-hmm. right? So, let's talk a little bit about the daughter because right. it's a kind of sad story.
0: <laughs> yeah, so the, the it's similar between the book and the movie, yeah. but it's different. So, basically, the you know, the Luis, I guess chronologically, what happens is Luis gets married to Gary, they have the daughter. She's not named in the book, but she's named in the movie. um, Her name is Hannah.
1: Right.
0: uh, Because the name Hannah reads the same forwards and backwards. The
1: (laughs) palindrome. And
0: Louise is a nerd, so that's what she (laughs) named her daughter. (laughs) And uh, in the books, the daughter uh, grows up, and Louise has a lot of memories of her as a little girl, doing regular little girl things, and then sort of being a rebellious teenager. And, uh, you know, sort of seems like she sort of struggles with the parents' divorce a little bit. Right. And stuff like that. And then the daughter gets into an accident and dies when she's 25, I think. In
1: the book, yes. Yeah, in the book. Oh, right.
0: Um, the difference in the movie is that the daughter dies, same, uh, also dies at 25, but dies... Not I thought she was younger. She looked like an adult to me. It? Well, they, okay. didn't, they didn't specify not specify. They didn't say, yeah, yeah. She dies from some genetic disease. That's like right. an incurable mystery genetic disease that kills her. But I think those have different implications in terms of this. So, so right. you know, the fact that in the book it's an accident,
1: right? Yeah. So I think what 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 the author is trying to 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 explore the idea here. So you know, it says if I know the future, mm-hmm. why can't I change it? Right. Mm-hmm. And this is you know, having your child die is probably a pretty horrible thing to happen mm-hmm. to anyone.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, the question is, why doesn't she change it? Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the stuff I I have like some interesting things and from the book and um let's see the existence of free will meant that we couldn't know the future and we knew free will existed because we had an direct experience of it so it's like what 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 he says or, she, or, or what uh, louis says in the book is that you know just because you know the future doesn't mean you can change it it's like mm-hmm. you know you just kind of play it out and it and, and some of the interesting things uh, i think was well, she said it even if you know what, what, what's gonna happen mm. until you say it it doesn't ha- like oh I, I know what how it came out. So heptopods speak heptapod A, mm-hmm. which is like normal linear speech, you know. Right. They, they make the sound, yeah. Time. And then they write. And the writing is completely different mm-hmm. in the sense that it's not time dependent. And what she's I think she says in the book, it that for the for the heptopods spoken language is like a play. If you go to Shakespeare play, you know exactly what words are coming up. Mm-hmm. But but still it's a play uh, or like a wedding you know a wedding has a script and people say the right things but mm. until they say it they're not married right know? so yeah. so i was thinking about that you know this idea of a play and stuff and one idea one analogy i thought of, of for the for helped b language is mu- music yes right? yes so, i like i like this analogy uh, a lot i think it's really good so if you think of a musical score like for for a large symphony mm-hmm. it's all there right it's all written out Tells you exactly what's going to happen, mm-hmm. uh, what the timing is, and so forth. But, and, and somebody who, who reads music can look at it and can you know, sort of hear it in their heads. Mm-hmm. As, uh, but it's like a whole thing. But it still has to be played out in time. Like if you right. want to actually say it, you have to go step by step.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But um, you can look at it and know, like if, you, if you're able to read it. Right. You, you know the feelings and the and right. the sound. So like
1: when, when you read stories about Mozart, who was like a musical genius, mm-hmm. when he had to write a composition... Somebody asked him, "So, so when you're going to write the symphony?" I said, "I already did it. I just have to jot it down on paper." <laughs> it was all in his head. Yeah. So.
0: No, I think that's. I think it's a good, um, a good comparison to this because hard. It's it's hard as as a human and not a heptapod. It's hard to imagine, you know, just looking at a really complex symbol and getting a really big idea. So one wh- one thing, that's sort of similar, I guess, is you know I studied Japanese for a while when I was in college. And um, they have an alphabet, but then they also have a system called kanji, Those mm-hmm. words, like one kind of complicated symbol that you just sort of have to memorize all of them. And so you see the one complicated symbol, and there are strokes within it that are related to other symbols and things like that, like there's certain ways they're built. But you know, you just memorize basically the one symbol and its meaning, but it also comes with, some, with sound, so it's like a little bit different from this. It's hard to imagine like especially in the movie when they draw the big circles. Right. Like being able to just look at this circle and like know what it says. Like, right. like a whole and a whole potentially really complicated thought. Like right. they express But I mean a really when
1: just writing by itself, just regular writing like we see here mm-hmm. is pretty miraculous when you think about it. Mm-hmm. It's like I, I've seen there was some movie about American Indians who used to talk about writing it was the talking paper. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. somebody scribbled some some things and then some other other person reproduced it exactly. Right. Which is pretty, like like yeah. the lady in the TED talk says, you know, it's pretty strange. I can make these sounds mm-hmm. and make air vibrate and, and transmit thoughts into your head.
0: Well, la- spoken language is common to, like, all human civilizations, but writing isn't. Writing isn't Correct. something everybody has.
1: So I found this quote about uh, free will mm-hmm. and, and future. So here's, here, here it goes. This was from, from the story. So similarly, knowledge of the future was incompatible with free will. What made it possible for me to exercise freedom of choice also made it impossible for me to know the future. Conversely, now that I know the future, I would never act contrary to that future, including telling others that I, what I know. Those who know the future don't talk about it. Those who have read the Book of Ages never admit to it.
0: So in the, in the book, does she not tell Gary that the daughter's going to die?
1: I don't think so. But in, in, in the movie, they imply that she tells him that's why he And that's leaves. why he
0: leaves, yeah. Right. It's kind of shitty. He, yeah, in the, in the movie The Empire she tells him that the, that the daughter is going to die. And right. he sort of, and he says she made the wrong choice. And I don't know if that's supposed to be the choice to tell him or the choice to have the daughter in the first place. Right. Or what,
1: what right. choice? And so here he implies that this is not just just because you know what's going to happen doesn't mean you can stop it or, right. or would stop it.
0: Um, it's, a, it's embracing fate. You know, it's sort of a, um, embracing right, the idea right. so, that
1: there's... there's. So, right. So, this kind of goes back to the nature of time. So, I, I in between uh, reading the story, I've read a book about, by this physicist, Italian physicist, about, it's called The Order of Time, mm-hmm. which he tries to explain what time is. Oh, God. <laughs> and uh, I came away from it very confused. But the kind of, the, the large point that he tries to make is that in physics, as far as we know, there isn't no such thing as time it's just a dimension like length you know you, mm-hmm. you, you. as far as all the formulas and our understanding how things work you know typically the the example that they give if you play some if you make a movie or something play it forward or backwards mm-hmm. we can tell the difference mm-hmm. but in physics if you if you were able to, to film some experiments if you playing forwards backwards you can't tell mm-hmm. which one is forward which one is backward. Mm. And that's how physics is mostly. There's just, there's just one thing, this thing called entropy, which is not, which is unidirectional, which kind of implies time. Mm. But he basically seems to imply time is really like a construction of of human mind.
0: Yeah. And,
1: I and mean, I, this I is get this it. is the question. That, you know, <laughs> this is what I said before about music. How can music exist, right? Because now exists, right? Now mm. it's it's now, right now. Pain now. <laughs> uh, that other bin was in the past, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Future hasn't happened yet, right? What is music? Music is sounds in time. Mm-hmm. So if I'm have first beat of a bar happens, then second and third, by the time you get to the fourth beat of a bar, what happened to the first one? It's gone. It's gone. it doesn't exist. Oh, Bill, no. <laughs> so the I think what he says in the in, in the book and the book about time is that it's like human memory mm-hmm. kind of creates time because you know the, the reason music exists because you kind of remember what happened couple of seconds back, mm-hmm. and that makes music, it, so it's, it's, it's very weird when you... So
0: music does exist, that's what I'm getting from this. Well,
1: <laughs> apparently. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> it managed to exist.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely, I think that's uh, and you should put a link or something to the book that you read. Yeah, I'll put, um, put a link to
1: that book, and um, so the other thing in the quote I just read, she mentions Book of Ages, mm-hmm. which is... Um, Allusion to a story by Jose Luis Borges, mm-hmm. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, he, he's written a bunch of stuff, these kind of weird stories, but one of them is called Library of Babel. Mm-hmm. And basically the story is about this library that's infinite. There's infinitely many books and every possible book is in it, mm-hmm. which means the book, the library contains the story of your life.
0: Oh, yes, that's where the
2: title comes right. from.
1: So that's kind of, I think, where the title comes from, from that idea. And of course the joke is that, you know, library also contains the book the, the story of your life where your name is spelled differently, you know. For every other spelling. You know.
0: It's like a library, it's like a multiverse library. Yeah. So I think one of the one of the things we should so we've talked about some major themes, you know, time being an illusion, how language shapes reality, um, fate, that kind of stuff. I, I think most of those themes come forward. From the I guess it would be the a plot, which would be the the main plot about the hea plots, right, so the question then is sort of like, what is with this secondary story about the daughter, um besides you know mm-hmm. helping us understand what's happening to louise and I think for in both the book and the movie, what I got from it was this i guess this theme of the the questioning like what is the what is the purpose of life kind of thing, but also I think embracing the idea that. A life is is complete and whole no matter its length that's like valuable no matter how long it was right. because to Louise time is no longer she's like the physics problems right time is no longer really an issue
1: right she knows it all right I mean she she so, she has seen the whole thing
0: right so um, she, she you know her and I think it's it speaks a lot to her character that whenever she talks about her daughter she talks about her in the future she does, she does future t- right. tense because she's not saying, you know, I remember back when you were alive before you died and this horrible thing happened. Right. She's saying, I remember a time when you were. But maybe the
1: other purpose of that second story was to show what, what I just said, is that, you know, the, your fate is set and you shouldn't, yeah. you should you cannot change it mm-hmm, definitely. Or, or you shouldn't change it. See, this is another quote kind of along those lines, mm-hmm. but and the heptapods, the spoken language, which is like a linear, mm-hmm in the written language, and says, for Heptapods, all language was perf- all language was performative. Instead of using language to inform, they used language to actualize. Sure, Heptapods already knew what would be said in any conversation, but in order for the knowledge to be true, the conversation would have to take place.
2: Mm. So
1: this is the idea of a wedding. You know, Exxon right. knows what happens at the wedding, mm-hmm. but until everybody says the right thing, mm-hmm. the thing hasn't happened. Right, <laughs> It's kind of strange. Yeah, I don't know why... I suppose the, he made... Uh, the secondary story or the other story as a death of the child,
2: mm-hmm.
1: just because it's very traumatic. That's kind of very, uh, mm-hmm. if, if you could change anything in your life.
0: Right, right, right exactly. So no, I, I think that's, I, I think you're right. I think it goes towards those themes of, of fate. And and I think it also sort of, the whole the whole story sort of calls into question. And And for humans, I think this could be very challenging. If you know what's going to happen already, what's the point? Right?
1: Right, and then which is what she right. it's, it's like a play. Right,
0: know. but it sort of like takes the sh- shock out of anything and takes the surprise out of anything. And I, I, so I, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's but again, it's
1: like when you're performing yeah. a piece of music that was written by somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's all there.
0: Right, exactly. Why did we do that?
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
0: uh, I wanted to talk about one other structure thing I, uh-huh. I just missed earlier. So I was talking about how the chapters sort of alternate between these two stories, and in the movie as well, the scenes cut between the right. two but in both the movie and the book they begin to bleed together so towards the end her chapters have both within a chapter so like there's a there's a chapter where she's with Gary and um towards the end and she sees like a salad bowl and within that chapter then there's like a paragraph or two where she has the future memory of the daughter knocking the salad bowl over right
1: that's right yes
0: and yes. so they start to they start to bleed together and i think it's just fabulous writing. And then the movie does that just by making the clips cut closer right, and closer. Right, right. And I think it's just fabulous writing to, what a, what a genius way to structure a story, to have these sort of two plots slowly converging to get this point across that this is now how Luis is seeing and experiencing right, the world. Right. So I thought that was just super neat.
1: Talk about gender stuff since you finally got your, your, your female character.
0: I did finally get my female character and I'm mostly happy with it. <laughs> I liked it too. Yeah. Um, I I'm mostly happy with it. I'm nit, I am nitpicking. This is nitpicking. I understand that I'm nitpicking, but I'm gonna nitpick because it's my favorite thing to do. Gender-wise, my only struggle is one thing you pointed out that I had noticed when I watched the movie originally, but I had forgotten, which is that you know you have all these scientists and stuff working on this, and the lead female character is a linguist, and the lead male character is a physicist, and there is that sort of that's a little bit gendered in that.
1: Human physicist.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit gendered in that the study of language and, and uh, things like that are more, uh, like slightly more feminine coded than the study of like hardcore mathematics, which is now- nowadays, which is more masculine coded. So it's like a little bit stereotypical that one that the man would be the physicist and the woman would be the linguist. It, I don't think it's breaking. I don't think it hurts right. the story in right. particular. I think it could have been swapped and it would have been fine, but then I mean, character would have been Gary, not Louise. Right. So, and then, but that sort of gets my my second issue, which is um, it's a little bit, and it's, it it toes the line. It's a little bit stereotypical for a female character's whole story to be about either uh, the man she loves or her children. And it's not that like women can't love their children or anything like that. They absolutely can, and as can men. It's just the when you when you're writing a story, you know, you make you make these choices actively, and it's just it's a little it's a little bit of a pigeonhole. Again, I don't think it's something that breaks the story, and I think it's very believable, especially considering the child dies. And whether you're a father or mother, or whatever, any child that you care for that dies is a horrible, traumatic thing. So it's just, like, it's one of those things where it's, like, I, t- I noticed it because I was thinking about it. I, again, I don't think it really hurt much. But I also thought the story was, like, fabulous. So yes. I couldn't find a lot to complain right. about. It. Right. <laughs> so it's just, like, I don't know. It's just something I'm like aware of. I'm not sure. I haven't read a lot of Chang's other stuff. So I don't... Part, part of the question is, is that part of a pattern? Like, is, does he write like that?
1: Or is that just this did particular Did you read story? The Tower of Babylon?
0: I did, but that, I don't remember that really having any gender stuff in there right. that I've I noticed
1: think so, yeah.
0: as as because like for example when we read Ursula Le Guin's um, Left Hand of Darkness she seemed to have in that story actively put in the gender stereotypes right. well, for, the pur- reason, for the purpose right. right for the purpose of exploring it right. which is great you know that's how you're supposed to use it as opposed to sort of unconsciously having your stereotypes right. completely right. into your writing right. so that that was the only thing I don't think it was bad I I don't yeah. actually have anything really to complain about much with the book, <laughs> so you want to talk about favorite parts? Yes. Yeah. So, um, in the let's start with the book or the the story. What was your favorite part in the story?
1: So what did I put down? You
0: put you I wrote time. Well, structure.
1: the time structure did just the structure of the book just just mm-hmm. kind of went went between the two stories kind of interleaved. You're right. I didn't notice it, but it became you know more interleaved as it got towards the end, which mm-hmm. is very cool. Yeah. And like the the non-zero-sum game build piece, that was kind of cute. Yeah, that was in both. both. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I think my favorite part of the story was the scene I talked about before in the... when they were in the Chinese restaurant, and she sort of makes the connection with the Fermat. Did I talk about it before? I didn't talk to you about it before we started recording. She makes the connection between Fermat's principle, the the, the light beam, and that the light needs to know the goal before it starts. And then she makes the connection to the, the language. Right. It was one of my favorite scenes. It's very well written.
1: I um, also like the bits of like philosophy that were kind of thrown in mm-hmm. about you know free will versus uh, knowing a future. Yeah. I just happened to listen to another physicist the other day on some podcast, and there's in physics there's something called comp- comp- complementary principle, mm-hmm. and it comes up like when you talk about light is light a particle or a wave? The answer is yes, it's, <laughs> it's both, but depending on which experiment you perform, one or the other exhibits itself, but not both at the same time. So mm-hmm. this is like another example of that where you can have free will or you can know the future, but you cannot have both. Mm-hmm. But oh, they're like two different things, mm-hmm. you know, or comp- the complements of each other. Yeah. You know, it's like you can either look at the world where I have free will and I don't know what my future is, or you can look at the world where there's free will well, i know the future but there's no free will because
0: right because the futures already set
1: <laughs> okay
0: <laughs> in the movie i think we both put down the same favorite part was that we liked the uh the reveal the the, the climax of the movie where she calls the general right. and there's that right. the cut scenes back and forth cuz i thought that was very well done in comparison to the part of the movie i disliked which was that this they do this thing where the soldiers the American soldiers that are working with them at their ship in the movie are like spooked by the aliens or something.
1: Xenophobia. Yeah, yeah Xenophobia. immigrants.
0: Exactly. So, yeah. Damn aliens coming here and taking our jobs. <laughs> um, and they they put a bomb inside the ship and one of the heptapods gets injured and dies. I didn't I didn't think it was a necessary component of the movie and right. on my first watch through I didn't get it I didn't understand what had happened. Right. And then later I figured it out, and I was like, eh, was, I didn't think it was. The, the rest of the drama, the political drama, unfolded in and of itself, like, fine. But I must say, the bomb scene in the movie does give us a great moment between, between the heptapods and the humans, because Louise and Gary are in the ship when the bomb is, like, ticking. And the heptapods, of course, know about it. And the heptapods come up to the screen, and are like they're, like, tapping on the screen with their tentacles. All oh, right. And the first time I watched it, I like had no idea. And then I was when we rewatched it, I was like, is he? He's pointing. The Heptapod right. was pointing at the bomb to try to warn them, right. which was cute.
1: Yeah,
0: it was nice with the Heptapod.
1: Yeah, I didn't like that the movie was had to go through this political kind of a thing. I'm not, which is kind of a standard kind of a thing for for alien invasion movies. Yeah, I'm not sure what else they could have done, right, to make to have this this. Uh, have like, an up.
0: exciting thing, yeah but I mean it it worked it worked worked. all right it it didn't
1: really take away from 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 the the rest of the movie
0: you know what it was it's like the rest of the movie was very unique like super unique in terms of like science fiction but the political drama was kind of generic you know because like you're saying it's like when you know aliens arrive what do we do we all freak out like that it's we've had a lot of movies like that before and then both of us for the book couldn't think of something that was our least favorite part. Right. <laughs> I really, I really highly recommend this short story. It's not long.
1: Right, um, and even if you know the plot, yeah, you can still, still enjoy it. yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so now you're thinking about it. You should go read it. We should tell them what the the gift was.
1: Oh,
0: right. So the the gift, and this is a little bit different between the story and the and the movie. The the. Heptapods came to teach humans how to speak the language. Right. That was it. And in the movie, the heptapods explain that in like three thousand years or something, they're going to need humans' help. Right. Something like that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the. Heptapods.
1: Well, you know, linear humans couldn't quite get stuff. So.
0: Yeah. So so the heptapods are like, you know, we got to come here and teach you the language so that you can come help us in three hundred years, which is it's it's weird because they know that and. So they're just playing it out. It's so, so bizarre. <laughs> it's just so bizarre. But yeah, so so Luis was right, you know, they weren't trying to give like a weapon or anything. They were just trying to right. to uh, do some like a really good foreign language lesson, basically.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, yeah, I really like the story because, you know, th- those two ideas of, of how language influences your thinking mm-hmm. and, and the nature of time.
2: Mm-hmm
1: kind of pretty deep ideas
2: yeah.
0: yeah I wonder I would love I wonder if anyone's done like an interview with um, Ted Chang and asked him like how he came up with this it's, it's really it's really creative it's like yeah deep hardcore science fiction creative you know
2: yeah
1: and and. and it's also written very well I mean it's it's mm-hmm. very cleverly that you don't notice yeah. so the the interesting part is that both movie and and the story end in the same spot which is the spot they began and mm-hmm. where where she's with Gary I guess and which we find out at the end that's Gary mm-hmm. and he says to her you know let's go make a baby.
0: Mm-hmm. So so do you think so I guess I guess we both liked the story. We both like the story, yes. <laughs> you think the movie adap- adaptation
1: I thought was it was good? pretty good, yeah.
0: Yeah, I thought it was great. I thought that it did a really good job. It's it's hard because I really liked it so I can't, I don't have a lot to complain about. <laughs>
1: You know, if I had read the story first, I would would not think that would be a good uh, movie. Uh, Why? I don't know because in story, it's it's more stuff that happens in your head. Yeah, you know, the it's, the
0: it's, story's more, um, I guess, like cerebral in the sense that it's like it's it's more thought than action. Right. And but I think that the movie does a good job of getting a lot of that thought on screen. Right. You know, and mostly by exploring the way that they. Do the experiments, right. you know the various, and there are some great scenes in there. Like I love the scene in the movie where when they when they first go into the ship in the movie, they go in like these hazmat suits, right? Because they like are scared of aliens, right? And uh, they're in these hazmat suits, and Luis is trying to teach the aliens the word Luis, like her name, and she's like they're not getting it, and she's like they don't they can't see me, and so she just like tears off her hazmat suit, and everyone's like freaking out because she's being exposed, and they don't know what's going on or whatever. And she like goes up to the, the screen. There's like I'm not sure if it's that scene or later where she puts her hand on it. Mm-hmm. I think it's there. She puts yeah. her hand on it and then the, the heptapod puts its uh, tentacle on it. It's fabulous, fabulous visuals. And yeah, and
1: the writing actually. Come to think of it, the, the way they portrayed the writing in, in the movie was probably one of my favorite things.
0: Yeah. I, I, that's one of the things I prefer. I prefer in the movie that they made the logograms circular. Right. Because it fits into that whole
2: like... Yeah. No time beginning, is, no end. Time maybe. is an
0: illusion. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nothing is linear. <laughs> I thought I don't know. I thought the movie adaptation was fantastic. I thought they did a really good job, and the act, the main actress whose name I do not know, but I recognize her. She's in lots of stuff. I okay, was, so that that was. Uh,
1: that was our impression mm-hmm. of the story. Yeah. You, you should read it and go see the movie, mm-hmm. whatever order. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you could start the movie in middle and it'll be fine. <laughs> So next time, uh, we're going to um, undertake a large book that we've both read before, Speaker for the Dead by Orson Scott Card.
1: Um, this is going back, you know, without continuing without theme of Unusual Aliens.
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, I read this, oh gosh, because I, I read Ender's Game,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Ender's Shadow, and then I read Speaker for the Dead. But I was like pretty young when I was mm-hmm. reading them. I
2: don't know. But we were in. A while ago.
0: We we went on a, the, the we took a family trip to like uh, Saint Croix or something when I was reading um, okay. Ender's Game.
1: You're probably still just beginning of high school or something.
0: Yeah, or like like middle school. Yeah. So I and I like I remember the main plot of Speaker for the Dead, but I know I missed a lot. So it'll be good to have it on the reread. Now that's a thick book, so that's gonna.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna listen to the audio version. I've read it several times already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean,
0: I'm looking forward to rereading Speaker for the Dead. I love Ender's Game. Mm. I've not seen the Ender's Game movie.
1: You should watch it. It was pretty good, actually. That was was not a pretty decent adaptation.
0: Speaker for the Dead is chronologically after Ender's Game, right? Okay. All right, thank you for joining us uh, for History in Reverse. Uh, We'll see you guys next time.
1: Bye. now so we can make easter eggs of all kinds. <laughs> um okay i have see i took lots of notes
0: let me see <laughs> are you putting the date on it that's so okay. cute um i like the the music analogy we, we have to talk about that yeah. because
1: i that, that 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 seems to be
0: gives like a really good uh, i guess human understanding of it as best you can